You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 18th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... The economy has started to contract. You know, the tunnels are closed, roads are closed, schools have been closed, and there's even a threat now that local elections will be cancelled, which is probably likely to make the protesters even more cross. So, yeah, it just seemed to be a situation that's, that is escalating. My guests Terry Stiasny and Stephen DL will be looking at the situation in Hong Kong. We'll also be looking at TV debates during election periods and asking who really belongs on the stage. Plus, our panellists will tell us why... Russia's footballers refuse to wear their new kit at the weekend. And last but not least... I'm Monocle's senior editor, Robert Bounds, and I'm going to be getting to the core of the issue about a dispute over English apples. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined today by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel and the author and journalist Terry Stiasny. And we'll start in Hong Kong, where the long-feared climactic confrontation between protesters and security forces seems to have not quite happened yet. A standoff has been occurring between police and protesters who have occupied Hong Kong's Polytechnic University. This particular battle has been one of the most violent of the demonstrations which have beset Hong Kong for the last several months. Protesters have deployed Molotov cocktails and bows and arrows against police who have responded with tear gas and rubber bullets. Uh, Stephen, we will start with the eternal question, which is, is Beijing just going to carry on waiting this out? I doubt it. Um, now, you know, I'm old enough not only to remember what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989, but actually to have been um, working. I wasn't there, but I mean, I was working at the BBC. I was um, covering what was happening elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and we kept a close eye on that as well. And I remember saying to someone on the 3rd of June, 1989, you know, this could all end in tears. And of course, it was on the night of the 3rd, 4th that um, they sent in the troops. Um, given the kind of system com- uh, communist China has, um, I can't see that they can allow this to go on. And I can see, uh, you know, a gradual build-up, um, and the fact that you know the police seem to have been uh, allowed to act without any comeback at all. I mean, they're, you know, they're, 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 there's been film. They don't seem to be worried about you know film of someone being shot at, at very uh, point-blank range um, of, of protesters being beaten and so on. They, you know, they they seem to have no uh, no worries about this at all, as if there's not going to be any comeback on them. Um, and that suggests a, a build-up to a point where China may well turn around and say, well, we don't care what the rest of the world says. Hong Kong is part of China and um, we're going to keep it that way, And in which case they could send in troops. So I I think there is still a build-up going on and I find it very worrying. Uh, Terry, on that subject of the apparent um, abandon with which Hong Kong police are increasingly acting, and Stephen is quite right to point it out, that they they are getting increasingly rough and increasingly indiscriminate, um, and there doesn't appear to be any official restraint on that. But to what extent do we overlook the human factor in a situation like this? This is not to excuse the behaviour of Hong Kong police, or indeed any police when they act outside their remit, but... These are people by now who are physically and psychologically exhausted. 
Yes, I think if you see reports from, you know, particularly the impact on, on these students who are trapped inside the university, there's tear gas, there's water cannon, you know, it's it's not, in, you know, 38 people were wounded over during Sunday night. So, you know, a lot of people, and then you hear from people trying to get the word out. They're saying, yeah, exactly that, that they are they are exhausted. And there have even been some, you know, really worrying comments with students saying, look, well, we are, we are prepared to give our lives in this cause. Um, and, you know, obviously n- nobody wants that to happen but you think you know the more and more that uh, the protesters feel literally they are literally under siege uh, the the less and less likely they are to to want to stand down and there seems to be no kind of process i mean they put demands forward of what they want there seems to be no kind of a negotiation and in the meantime you know hong kong is being uh, you know, is suffering real problems with this. I mean, if you look at the economy, it started to contract. You know, the tunnels are closed, roads are closed, schools have been closed, and there's even a threat now that local elections will be cancelled, which is probably likely to make the protesters even more cross. So, yeah, it just seemed to be a situation that's, that is escalating. I mean, on the subject of that escalation, Stephen, have we, are we approaching or have we passed the point, which, which often occurs in, in similar situations at which the... The violence starts to feed on itself. Everybody on both sides kind of loses track of what the protests were about in the first place. And especially, and Terry quite rightly points out, that people have been injured, some seriously. That becomes a a self-perpetuating thing once people start to think, well, people have been hurt in this cause, therefore the cause must be pursued. I'm afraid it does. Um, Also, you know, given that the the focus of the protests at the moment is coming from students. Um, armies rely on the fact that young people think, it's, you know, I, I can go in and they can say things like, you know, oh, I'm prepared to die for this and so on because they don't believe they will. Mm. Um, and, and similarly here, you've got students. And again, if I can go back to 1989 and Tiananmen, those were student protests and the students who, who thought you know, they don't have such life experience, they think you know, life can only be better and we, we, you know, let's protest and we'll get it better. Um, and they don't really understand, the, I think, the threat to themselves. Even when they see all this violence around them, it's always going to happen to someone else. I think there's, there's often an element of that. And so they, I, I think you know, they don't seem to be backing down. On the contrary, they, they are getting more violent. And as we say, the police too, I mean, their, their actions um, are, are, are appalling. One of the, an interesting point that um, I noted was that apparently a lot of the police have been heard speaking uh, Mandarin to each other as opposed to Cantonese, which most people speak in Hong Kong. So are these police who've been drafted in from mainland China, which is, is that a kind of the thin end of a wedge? Um, it reminded me of, of when we, the, this summer when there was big demonstrations in, uh, in Moscow, uh, which didn't go as far as this, of course, but there were big demonstrations and the police acting there were often, it's very difficult to find a policeman in Moscow who's from Moscow. They mm. normally they, they come in because they, they get a better life living there, and so they will do as they're told. Similarly, are these um, mainland Chinese police who are now in, in Hong Kong or have been living in Hong Kong like the, 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 the system there um, and are prepared to, to, to fight to, to keep it themselves? So you've got there are very high stakes on both sides. Uh, Terry, we did see after a fashion over the weekend Chinese soldiers deployed in the streets of Hong Kong. This was People's Liberation Army soldiers leaving their barracks to help clean up. Um, 
is that just, well, I mean, there's a number of ways to look at that. It might just have been soldiers leaving their barracks to help clean up. Um, it might have been uh, a warning uh, of further escalation, or it might have been kind of a PR exercise. Yeah, I I think I probably tend towards uh, the second of those that, you know, that they this is a deliberate, we're reminding you that we are here. I mean, remember early, earlier on in these protests, we saw images from China of you know, troops in a big uh, football stadium, I think mm. it was. And those, those images were, it, it was a kind of a big, you know, just so you don't forget, we are here. And although we're trying to make it look like that we're just helping you nicely, uh, we don't we don't have to play so nice. I would, I would think that that is probably... Um, probably one of the, the main factor there. I mean, I'm just going back to what we were saying earlier, I think we can't forget that students are not probably analysing this in geopolitical terms as what will the role of China be, what's the rest of the world's reaction going to be. They probably just think that they're in the right. And, you know, I think to a large extent they are. You know, they say we would like more democracy. We don't want to have people extradited to China. We don't entirely want to be uh, run by China. And, you know, maybe we should give them more of the benefit of the doubt, and, you know, in the same way that we did to protesters in, you know, whether it was Prague in 89 or, or Tiananmen Square. You know, they, they may get crushed quite literally by geopolitics, but, you know, let's, let's give them a shout. Terry Stiasny and Stephen Diol back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Several protesters have been arrested while trying to run from a Hong Kong university campus surrounded by police. A group of around 100 people tried to leave the Polytechnic University, but were met with tear gas and rubber bullets. This follows a violent standoff with police. Basic provisions have been flown to the Bolivian capital, La Paz, amid reports of food and fuel shortages in that country. The move is an attempt to bypass road blockades, which have been erected by supporters of former President Evo Morales, who resigned earlier this month before seeking asylum in Mexico. And U.S. billionaire Michael Bloomberg has apologized for backing New York's stop-and-frisk policy. Bloomberg, who served as the city's mayor and who has made moves towards running as a presidential candidate, said the controversial policy wrongly targeted black and Latino residents. Those are some of the news headlines we're following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Here with me, Andrew Muller, along with Terry Stiasny and Stephen Diel. Well, let's look now at the UK, currently subjecting itself to its third general election in the last four years. That fixed-term Parliaments Act of 2011 really has hit the ground running. The scheduled set piece of this week is tomorrow's debate between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Opposition Leader Jeremy Corbyn, who are apparently the best that a wealthy, educated and advanced country of 66 million people can do. There are those Those who believe this cast list should be expanded, the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish National Party, have mounted a legal challenge to get their leaders onto the stage as well. Um, Terry, the SNP are quite an odd case here in that their leader doesn't sit in the Commons, uh, that they don't contest seats in England and therefore won't end up governing the country. But Jo Swinson from the Liberal Democrats, should she be included? I think the main reason that uh, people... It's its difficult, but so as you say, if you start to include some of the smaller parties, then you ha- probably have to include the rest. So if you're going to include... The Lib Dems are, of course, a smaller party than they, they smaller, once were. They're, they're much smaller party than they once were, but they are contesting you know, most of the seats. If you bring in the SNP, then the argument would probably go that you have to bring in Plaid Cymru. You know, do you have to bring in the Brexit party who are standing in approximately half the seats, even though they've got a sort of vanishingly small chance of... of and their leader isn't MPs. standing 
in any and their of leader them. isn't isn't standing in any of them. So who who precisely uh, do you talk to? Um, I think one of the reasons the Liberal Democrats in particular would like to be part of this debate is probably their hope for what was the Nick Clegg effect in 2010. So in those 2010... Clegg mania. Clegg mania, Or or, or as I was reliably informed, as it was known inside the Liberal Democrats, Clegg's to see. (laughs) 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 Well, but, you know, every people, you know, those of us who remember such (laughs) niche things, uh, remember that Nick Clegg came on in, in the 2010 election and he had the other party leaders kept repeatedly saying... I agree with Nick. And I think there is that sort of slight worry from the two largest parties that if you say you've got Boris Johnson, you've got Jeremy Corbyn, both of whom arouse sort of strong animosity pretty much, you know, across the board in their own parties as well as in the opposing parties. If you have either one or two quite nice, reasonable sounding Scottish women on the panel with them, that people are going to go, well, yeah, this is an alternative. You know, maybe if I'm in England or Wales or Northern Ireland, I can't vote for uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, You can't vote for her only if you're in Scotland directly, but you can vote for her candidates then it might uh, it might show them up. I mean, it, Stephen, is that basically why the Liberal Democrats are so keen to get Joe Swinson on the stage? It's partly that fact that there can't be anybody in this country who hasn't already made up their mind about Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and as polling suggests, they're quite likely to have made it up in the negative. And you can well imagine that if you put... I mean, it's not just, as Terry says, a, 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 a reasonable-sounding Scottish woman. I think a balloon on a stick uh, would attract quite a following in, in, in this context. Um, but do the Liberal Democrats also have a problem with Joe Swinton that she's relatively new in her post and a lot of voters simply don't really know who she is? I think that's partly it, although there is um, a big campaign going on now um, to to publicise her. I mean, I've had the same leaflet through my door twice, actually, saying Joe Swinton, Britain's next Prime Minister. I have um, not had a single leaflet from anybody. You haven't. You're no, very I, I, lucky. I, I live think. in I live um, in a, a I live in a Labour seat where the proverbial balloon on the stick uh, would get posted exactly. in. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I um, it's very difficult to be um, totally objective about all this, so I'll be subjective. Um, and I do believe that the Liberal Democrats have a very good cause to to have their representative, in this case, Joe Swinson, uh, at the debate. Uh, it seems to me, you know, this is our, our ITN, the Independent Television Network, uh, which is holding the debate, and and that they've it's. It's as if they've said, well, one of these two, either Johnson or um, Corbyn, are going to be prime minister. So that's all we're going to we're going to allow people to see, um, which I think is, um, you know, you could say that's being dictatorial on the part of the television network. Um, as um, Terry has pointed out, of course, the Scottish Nationalist Party, although they have a good cause because they do have more MPs in Parliament, or they did have until Parliament was prorogued, uh, more MPs than the Liberal Democrats even. But of course, they're not they can't produce the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom because they uh, represent only Scotland. Um, so I would say, you know, a three-way contest, um, including the leader of the Liberal Democrats, w- would be fair and sensible um, because, you know, they are... And then also, there's, well, depending on who you ask, I mean, it looks as if they may actually do rather well in this forthcoming election. They could end up, if not the biggest party, then certainly holding the balance of power. Um, so I, I think that... Um, I think it's a silly mistake on the part of the television company, basically. I mean, Terry, I'm not about to sit here and pretend I'm not going to be watching tomorrow night, though I suspect it's unlikely to be an edifying spectacle. I am team balloon on a stick all the way. But there there were no head-to-head debates as such in 2017 uh, between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. There were things that were sort of debate adjacent, but not the actual leaders' debate. Do you feel like we missed anything? 
Uh, no. <laughs> I think those would not have been, they wouldn't have been exciting viewing. And I think when you're up against, you know, a sort of a Netflix box set on the other side, uh, people would probably, you know, there's The Crown, there's Succession, you can watch something else, you know. Uh, I don't think that You can would blow have, up a balloon and you can blow up a stick. balloon. Yeah. And, um, so I don't think that they're going to be hugely box office. And, you know, part of the difference as, as well, one of the factors coming to play here is probably that either of the main parties were all the other ones to be invited in would then pull their candidate and so you'd have a leaders debate without probably some of the leaders because they just say well we're 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 not playing this we're we're not doing this uh, and i'm not entirely sure who either labor or the conservatives you know why they think they are going to win this what they think will come out of it um so i'm actually quite surprised that they're carrying on the the leaders debate which is as you say a tradition that kind of comes and goes we didn't used to have them uh and we're trying to convince everyone that this has always been a thing in British elections, and it, and it certainly hasn't. Uh, Stephen, a final quick thought on the debate. Do you think it's actually possible, especially in these circumstances, when, as we've been discussing, there is it, it's not imaginable that anybody has a reversible opinion about either of these two men. Is this actually going to shift the needle? I don't think so. Um, the, the SNP seem to suggest that um, these debates convince a lot of people which way to vote. Um, I, I disagree. In fact, um, perhaps segueing into our next topic, but the only <laughs> thing I, the only thing I ever watch on television these days is football. Okay, well, thank you for that seamless gear change to our our last item, because finally on today's news panel, we will look at the always cheering spectacle of sports people affecting high dudgeon at the inadvertent misrepresentation of their national flag. It's usually North Korea throwing a fit at the South Korean flag being raised at their moments of triumph, one would prefer to believe deliberately, or Australia or New Zealand sighing at the, in fairness, understandable confusion of their very similar standards. Last weekend, however, it was Russia whose football team refused to wear a new shirt on which the stripes of their flag are inverted. Now, we should stress, uh, Terry, I will put this to you first, this is not like someone sewn an upside-down Russian flag onto their shirts, which would obviously be an egregious error. These are stripes on the sleeves of the shirt, which just happen to appear in reverse descending or ascending order to the red, white and blue stripes on the Russian flag. So my question to you is, who the hell cares? I think obviously the Russian football team care. Apart from the Russian football team. <laughs> and, and perhaps the Serbs and perhaps Russian football fans as well. I mean, Stephen's going to know more than this. But my particular favourite thing about this story is the head coach uh, of the Russian team, who was trying to make the best of a bad lot, realising that this has obviously gone down incredibly badly with his team and, and with the supporters. He said, it's all right, because when the fans support the team by clapping with their arms in the air, you'll be able to see the Russian flag. So it's, right. <laughs> it's not really upside down, because if you lift your arms, like, yes, if everyone in the football stadium does a handstand then it'll be the right way up as well so I think that was a particularly admirable uh, effort to try and convince people that this was not actually a big mistake. Um, Stephen I, I have tried to empathise with the Russian team here by transposing how this would appear were this to happen to Australia's uh, national football team and their kit. That's difficult because we don't play in the colours of our flag which are red white and blue. Australia plays in green and gold. Um, I've got absolutely nothing. I could not possibly care less. I, I don't I, I literally cannot understand how this is a thing or indeed why we're even talking about it. Well, I can tell you why we're talking about it. And in fact, um, it's very political. It's very political because, OK, the Russian flag is a tricolour, white at the top, blue in the middle, red at the bottom. True. Um, 
the they could have picked uh, more original colours. I mean, you make a rod, the, you make a rod for your own back when you just bung three primary coloured stripes on your flag. These are traditional Slav colours, because one of their complaints is it's the Serbian flag upside down. Um, but the the uh, the problem dates from two thousand and eight because. The first shirts, football shirts, that the Russian team wore after the breakup of the Soviet Union were white, because the, and the top colour of the flag is white. Because President Putin has made such a big thing about going back to Soviet times, in 2000, just like bringing back the tune of the old national anthem and, and, and so on... Which is a belter, in fairness. It, we were uh, discussing that before the programme. <laughs> but it, but it, it was, there was a Russian national anthem introduced under Yeltsin, which was then binned, which, which actually was a traditional tune, but that was binned. They brought back the old Soviet tune. And what they did in 2008 was bring back the old Soviet colour for the football shirts. The Soviet Union wore red shirts. Understandable. Communism. So on. Um, so they shouldn't actually be playing in red shirts in the first place. And they can't have the flag other than upside down because if the shirt is red, so this top of the, the top of the sleeve is red, you've, if you want the flag, you've got to have then blue and then white, which, which turns it upside down. So they should be protesting and saying, actually, we should be playing in white shirts. And if they had white shirts, then they had, they had, they had those stripes on the sleeve, then the flag would be the right way up. You uh, can't pick the blue shirts because that's yeah, that's France. France and just go, just go for the one colour. Pick we are les bleus and we are les bleus uh, in everything. So. They are, they've played. They have played in blue shirts as well, but tends to be as a, as a second shirt. Um, but the but that, that's it. They've gone for the wrong colour. They've gone for the old Soviet colour. So so tough chums. Stephen Diel and Terry Stiastny, thank you both. Coming up in a moment, we ask which fruit should be banished from store shelves and consigned forever to the compost bin. <laughs> Finally on today's programme, a rare expression of contrition by a Frenchman, specifically Raymond Blanc, the almost treacherously Anglophile French chef, who in a recent interview blamed the demise of the traditional English orchard on an invasion by French apples, specifically the risibly overrated Golden Delicious, which was gleefully flogged as Le Crunch in the 1970s. The question thus posed is, what other fruits should be moved post-haste from our green grocery shelves to our compost bins. Well, I'm joined by Monocle's senior editor and fruit desk chief. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ron, this is Ron, how you attain Ron, the rank of senior editor by knowing about fruit. Yeah, Which no, fruit you should hate? Fr- fruit desk. That's a thing fruit we're desk. doing now. So joining us from our fruit desk... Um, which other fruits should be going in the... Actually, first of all, let's talk about the let's golden, about the golden, golden delicious. delicious. Yeah. Do you hate it, and if so, why? Of course I do. It's, uh, it doesn't live up to its name in any way. It's soft, it's pappy, um, it's, like an over, it's like an overripe apple. Um, and is it golden or is it just yellow? Um, would, would, be my kind of, would be my first criticisms of the golden delicious. Um, in the mouth, it's kind of mealy. It's kind of like something that you might, before you throw it out, chuck it on a flan. But, you know, you can see why they went with golden delicious rather than yellow mushy. <laughs> yellow mushy. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Sounds like a, an underwhelming constellation in another galaxy. <laughs> uh, moving along then, what, right. what, what else are we leaving out for the squirrels? Well, let's, let's tick off the durian. This is Asia's favourite fruit. I'm not um, even sure banned I know what in a lot of well, it, it looks, uh, It looks like something you'd throw at someone, not in a good way. It okay. looks like a sort of underdeveloped coconut. Um, a durian, is, it stinks, Andrew. You might well have smelt it on your travel 
travels, it's banned on public transport and in hotel rooms in many parts of Asia as much as it's sort of hoarded as well. So it smells bad and it tastes like garbage. Why do people eat it? Um, Because there there are options available which do not smell bad or taste like garbage. I I, I wonder whether it's a cultural thing. I wonder whether there is that sort of in-the-know thing where once you take off all the stuff that actually smells of of, of crap, (laughs) you get to to the delicious kernel, which is the size of a a, a thumbnail. I I can't be bothered as a rule with food that requires effort. Yeah. Okay, well, let's. do you want to talk about the pomegranate? Uh, I do. I, I, pomegranate juice is nice. It's delicious stuff. But have you tried to, have you done, have you, have you, when you've taken down your Otolenghi cookbook of a Saturday night? <laughs> <laughs> uh, have I attempted to I'm, ever, I'm like, trying to cast a spell for uh, this? Are you asking me if I've ever attempted to juice my own pomegranates? <laughs> um, I, I in, have, sh- in short order, uh, yes. I, I have not. Life is too short. Um, exactly. So that's the point with the pomegranate. Delicious when someone else does it for you. Leading supermarkets in the United Kingdom do that for you. We kind of laugh at pre-grated cheese, but a pre-pricked or pre-juiced pomegranate um, is a very decent idea. Um, the jackfruit. What do you think about the jackfruit? I, I'm not even sure I know, I don't these know what a jackfruit is. I th- well, these are things that we might have thought were kind of invented by St. Ival in the 1980s <laughs> for the purposes to put in yogurt before we actually knew what they were, before you went to maybe a Caribbean greengrocer in London or a Middle Eastern greengrocer or these sorts of things. So these are the things that haven't quite made it into the mainstream, possibly for good reason. A lot of people think the jackfruit has got a musky, um, a musky flavour and a musky scent. Do you want that in a fruit? I don't know. That's you not, can yeah, have that's a nice not... crunchy Braeburn apple or, 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 or a cox. I, I know this, this is why I'm a bit baffled by this list which you have furnished. I, I genuinely have very little experience of any of these thinking that basically your apples, bananas and oranges, I mean, they're fine. Yeah, they're all good. I mean, the banana, kind of the best packaged, you know, yep. much, much to its probably chagrin itself, a bit, like a bit like a chicken's egg, a fantastically packaged piece of fast food. Um, do you, what about the persimmon? Again, I, I don't recall <laughs> ever having eaten one or ha- so you're or saying for this, for this item on the program you didn't even have a cursory google of a persimmon uh, I did not have a cursory google of a persimmon King which Crimson's not... third underrated album <laughs> which persimmon is, and, and not a sentence I've ever uttered previously <laughs> and will doubtless never do again uh, what, what is your objection to the persimmon whatever it even well, these, is this, this kind of fits in the category of a bit like the pomegranate that, that you mentioned uh, too much effort for what you get out of it because it's like once you take off the, the very thick foul smelling orange outer skin and you take the leaves off you just pare back some of the inner skin, then again, at the, uh, in the middle of it, you get something the size of a probably a, an atom or two's worth of kind of supposedly sweet flesh. And of course, if you're if you're it's, kind of not, not a mean, fan of it, the it's too hard. I mean, and bringing this discussion into the realm of the vegetable, the artichoke falls down badly. Okay, it does. This as well. it I does mean, really, who, who's got time for any of this? Jerusalem or otherwise. Uh, and we unfortunately have no time for <laughs> any more of this. Uh, Rob Bound from our fruit desk. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, that's all for today's show. Our producer was Daniel Bache and our studio managers were David Stevens and Steph Chungu. Coming up at 2000 London time, Rob is back with a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. The House View returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 